You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, and we're going to be reading verses 9 through 23a. You'll find this on page 918 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 23a. Hear the word of God. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Well, Peter is in Joppa. He's lodging with a man called Simon, who was a tanner. He ascends to the roof at noon in order that he might engage in prayer. And God is at work in preparing the way for the full inclusion of the Gentiles. He will commission the Apostle Peter to open the door of the kingdom because as Peter himself, he represents all the apostles as the leader among equals. You see, from childhood, he has been taught to avoid friendship and fellowship with Gentiles. He was not to enter their homes. He must not share in their meals. And this long-standing and deeply rooted prejudice was shared by all the Jews. But in a vision from God, this tightly held prejudice will be refuted, and Peter must learn to accept as brethren Gentiles who believe in Jesus. 
Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says, Now in Christ Jesus, they who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's staggering. It's an amazing transition because for thousands of years, they had been strangers to the promise. The Gentiles, and I would suspect that most, if not all of us, are Gentiles, The Gentiles had no part in the covenant of grace, and they were considered aliens. But the work of Jesus changed all of that, and we have become fellow citizens and members of God's household, so that we, who had been considered no better than dogs, have been adopted by God. It's a stunning development. Believing Gentiles are now on equal footing with believing Jews. And for ages, that truth, which we oftentimes take for granted, that truth has been hidden. It was called a mystery that's now been revealed. Ephesians 3, Paul says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. But as you might imagine, it would take time for that truth to sink in and to be fully embraced. So God's going to guide this leader among equals in accepting Gentile believers. In the vision, the Lord is going to teach Peter to forsake his Jewish partisanship. So the three men are sent by Cornelius to fetch the apostle and they approach the city of Joppa. Around noon, Peter himself goes to the roof, as I said, to pray. And in those days, houses had flat roofs where a person could find privacy. During the day on the roof, one could enjoy the cool breezes that came off the sea in the hot Mediterranean air. So Peter took advantage of the rooftop so that he could engage in private prayer. And since it was noon, it's not surprising to learn that the apostle became hungry. As lunch is being prepared, he falls into a trance. It's the word from which we get our term ecstasy. He was not dreaming. He was witnessing a vision sent to him from heaven. And it seems clear to me that he was in the spirit, to use a phrase from the Apostle John. From the Lord, Peter would receive instructions for the New Testament church. And from heaven descended into his view this great sheet filled with creatures. And the fact that it originates in heaven tells us that it was ordained by God. This is an important lesson, in other words, to be learned, and it had to come from the Lord. Only he can make such a monumental change. Scripture says the sheet contains all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds, and we're not given a detailed list, but from Peter's reaction, we know that it had clean and unclean. Now, the kosher laws had been laid down through Moses to prohibit eating certain foods, certain animals. And Leviticus 11 explains the difference between clean and unclean animals. You can't eat a camel if you're a Jew, or a rock badger, or a rabbit, or a pig, or an eagle, a vulture, or even a raven. For 1,500 years, think of that, 
15 centuries, God required strict observance of kosher laws. And then he speaks and he says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. From which the apostle recoils. What was this? Jews were to separate themselves by dietary laws. They would not think of killing and eating an animal that was unclean. It was one of those things that distinguished them as Jews. And it separated them, consecrated them from the rest of the Gentile world, from the dogs. And a conscientious Jew would never enter a Gentile home to eat or to drink. He would not even buy his meat from a Gentile butcher. And so Peter's ingrained prejudices were so strong that at first he refused. By no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. <laughs> I think it was infinite mercy on the part of the Lord to bear with him at that moment. When God gives a command, there should be no hesitation. But the Lord repeated his command twice more, three times. What God has made clean, do not call common. The work of redemption had been accomplished. Jesus had ascended. And under the new administration, there would be no distinction among God's people. What had once divided Jews and Gentiles was now obsolete. The kosher laws had been revoked. And that was an astonishing development. No longer would Jews be distinguished from Gentiles. All the barriers that once divided them have been taken away. In Christ Jesus, said Paul, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. No religious significance whatsoever. Jew and Gentile believers have entered into a brand new relationship. In the church... Believers from both groups are now considered equal. And specifically with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kosher laws have been rendered obsolete. The mystery had been revealed. People from all nations are included. And it's what Jesus had said when he commissioned the church, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, someone would ask me then, well, why didn't the Jews welcome the Gentiles right off the bat? After all, that's what Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. And you see, I think the early Christians understood that the gospel was to be preached everywhere. But I'm thinking that their thinking, it referred to believing Jews living in other countries. Go make disciples of all nations where the Jews are living. Those who fled from the persecution in chapter 11 spoke the word to no one except Jews. And when Peter gave an account to the Jews after this, they were surprised. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, well, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this required a vision from God himself to understand the mystery. 
The Gentile Christians are accepted as full members of the church and the gates of heaven are now open to people of every nation. Black, white, yellow, red makes no difference. Everybody. And at first, Peter didn't understand the significance of this, but when the three men showed up, he began to understand. So I think one of the things that we have to draw from this is to rejoice, first of all, in the advance of the kingdom through the spread of the gospel. It's advancing. Step by step, the Holy Spirit is leading the church to welcome sinners. First at Pentecost, the gospel proclaimed to the Jews from the diaspora. Second, Philip preaches in Samaria where half-breeds are converted. Third, Peter is led to Caesarea where Cornelius and his household would be converted. They would hear the gospel and trust in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, and it was a glorious beginning of the worldwide evangelization. That's first. Second, I think we should give thanks for the racial reconciliation that was achieved by Jesus Christ. You know, for reasons known only to him, God divided mankind into different races. And today they're derived from the threefold division after the flood, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And isn't it fascinating how that threefold division is represented in Acts 8, 9, and 10. Did you catch that? As a descendant of Ham, the Ethiopian was welcomed into the kingdom, Acts chapter 8. As a descendant of Shem, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. And as a descendant of Japheth, Cornelius will be saved, Acts chapter 10. God was reconciling the different strands of humanity into the church because he is no respecter of persons. He is going to save people from all nations. And in the church, it makes no difference to what strand of humanity you belong. Armenian, Romanian, <laughs> doesn't matter. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And as long as you trust in Jesus, you are welcome and on equal footing. Earthly distinctions mean nothing as we gather in the presence of the Lord. As Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So let's give thanks for the racial reconciliation accomplished by Jesus Christ. But then that leads us to our third observation. I think we need to learn the lesson taught by the distinction between clean and unclean. The Lord differentiated between these two to emphasize the need for cleansing. Because you see, one cannot approach a thrice holy God without concern for his holiness. That's what Nadab and Abihu did when they offered unauthorized fire. We're told, as the elder read, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. And they died. These two men were sons of Aaron, the high priest, highly privileged. They were brought up in the covenant, and in Egypt they witnessed God's power in ringside seats, so to speak. 
And on Mount Sinai, these two men were among those invited to worship and to eat in God's presence. Highly privileged men. They're freshly ordained as priests, and they offer unauthorized fire. They were careless. Their offering had not been commanded, and they were unclean in their approach to the thrice holy God. Moses says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And the priesthood had the responsibility to instruct those people in how to worship and to live holy lives. They were to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And they were to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken. Because you see, as a nation, Israel was set apart as holy to God, ceremonially clean. And in drawing near to him in worship, she had to maintain holiness. That was accomplished by following the laws having to do with cleanness. And yet how difficult that was, because almost anything rendered somebody unclean. You touch a dead body, you're unclean. You eat the wrong food, you're unclean. You have a skin disease or you brush up against some mold or mildew, you're unclean. Even ordinary things rendered you unclean, like the monthly cycle or a discharge. It was almost impossible to go through a day without becoming ceremonially unclean. And so God instituted ways for the Israelites to restore cleanness. They washed, they sacrificed. And those object lessons were meant to highlight a deeper theological issue. Fallen man is unclean. He has to be cleansed to have fellowship with God. And Jesus revealed the significance of this when he was teaching the people. He said, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, unclean food. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. From within, out of the very heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and so on. So what really defiles a person and renders him unclean is the corruption of the heart. You know, each one of us comes into this world with what is called original sin. We confess that. This denotes the total corruption of human nature that we all inherit. And our catechism says that by it, we are utterly Disposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually. That's original sin. We have within our souls a heart that has been severely distorted by sin. And from this polluted core originates our sinful thoughts and desires. And it was to this inward depravity that the Old Testament idea of uncleanness pointed. 
You and I are by nature unclean. That's the bottom line. We are conceived and born in sin. We're totally depraved. That's how you came into the world, and that's how I came into the world. We cannot escape it. As descendants of the first Adam, we're born sinful. And because of original sin, all kinds of actual sins plague our lives. Our existence is filled with corrupt thoughts, wicked words, evil deeds. And because of this, the entire human race has to pay a severe penalty. Paul puts it succinctly. The wages of sin is death. Death. That's not just physical death, it's spiritual death, eternal death. Man in his uncleanness will be consigned to the lake of fire. You see, there are only two places where souls will spend eternity, only two. When a person dies, he or she will go either to heaven or to hell. When the Apostle John was shown his vision of heaven, this is what he said. Listen carefully. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. So no one who remains in his native uncleanness will go there. And this is the dreadful significance, I believe, of that which Jesus said to the Pharisees. Do you recall what he said? I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's saying this to the religious elite. Without being cleansed of sin's contagion, we will die in its pollution. And then there will be no opportunity whatsoever to enter heaven. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. And I think there are several good and just reasons for this exclusion of the unclean. Let me mention four. First, it would be wrong for the glorified church to be defiled by corruption. Nothing unclean will enter into it. Second, No evil can be allowed because that would disrupt the blessedness of heaven. Third, the unclean heart, the unregenerate soul, doesn't want fellowship with a thrice holy God. Fourth, the purity and the majesty and the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ forbids such a thing. And therefore, no sinful human, no fallen spirit, no unclean person will ever enter heaven. Heaven will be perfectly and absolutely pure. Not even a thought of sin will be there. And people will be shut out of heaven, not only because of actual sins, but because of original sin. The iniquities of the human race have disqualified everyone from entering. That inbred corruption with which we are all born can keep us out of it. Jesus said the Holy Spirit was sent in part to convict the world concerning sin. 
And under his powerful influence, sinners are made to come to see the uncleanness of their hearts. Jonathan Edwards, with whom I'm sure all of you are familiar, with the name at least, he describes the experiences of those converts in the revival of 1735. And there was a vast difference in the degree and the manner of conversion, some suddenly, some gradually. But he says the thread that was common to all was a conviction of sin and the danger of judgment. That was common. I quote, Very often under first awakenings when they are brought to reflect on the sin of their past lives, they have something of the terrifying sense of God's anger, unquote. And he's referring there, of course, to the conviction of sin brought on by the Holy Spirit. The sinner sees the guilt of his sin and the corruption of his nature that he's unclean. Like David in Psalm 38, he says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. And there's David. He's, he's groaning under the load of his guilt and the pollution of his soul. You know what? It's a great mercy to be convicted by the Spirit. The vast majority have no sense of the danger of being unclean. You've heard this about his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This is what he says in that sermon. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Sovereign pleasure. God has the power, he says, to cast unclean sinners into the pit of hell. And he has the right to do so because justice demands that they be condemned. And as sinners, they're already under a sentence of condemnation, according to Jesus, who says whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. As the title of his sermon suggests, God is angry with sinners who reject the Lord Jesus. Very politically incorrect. But in Malachi 1 of Edom, it says they are the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Let me go on in quoting Edwards. He says this, the pit is prepared, the fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened its mouth under them. Now you ask yourself, why on earth would he preach something like that? Is he trying to scare people into heaven? No. Nobody can scare anybody into heaven. He preached it as a means of awakening his people of showing them the need to flee to Christ. 
He underscored human depravity and personal guilt and divine punishment, and I think such warnings simply echo the distinction between the clean and the unclean. Because apart from Jesus Christ, there is no escape from the wrath of God and everlasting punishment. I don't like to say those things. I would be remiss if I didn't. What an evil thing sin is. The devil stands ready to seize as his own unrepentant sinners because Jesus says the strong man's goods. That's what they're called. The goods of the strong man. And God is under no obligation to keep unbelievers out of the fires of hell. Until the person trusts in Christ, he is ripe for eternal damnation. He rejects Christ. He rejects his love, his grace, his mercy. And that is an affront to the divine majesty. Let me quote one more time from Edwards in this sermon that was so famous for awakening sinners. This is what he says. The God that holds him over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors him and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards him burns like fire. If I stopped there, we'd go home in despair. But I think we should thank God for the hope of salvation in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, because the only way that sinners will ever be cleansed of sin is to be washed by the blood of Jesus. We can't do it ourselves. The leopard cannot change his spots, and the Ethiopian cannot change his skin. Only by the blood of Jesus may sin be removed from the sinner. And the good news is that God offers cleansing to anyone who trusts in Christ. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What a profound and glorious declaration. Walking in the light simply implies confessing sin and trusting in Christ. The sincere Christian walks in the light of faith and believes in Jesus, and by that light he sees the invisible world. He cleaves to this invisible God. And he looks into eternity at the terrible punishments and the blessed rewards and the sight of those things impacts his thoughts and his words and his life. And he walks in the light. And one of the most glorious things about this is the completeness of the cleansing. He doesn't say we're cleansed from some sin or most sin or almost all sin. God cleanses all sin collectively and every kind of sin distributively. He cleanses us, and we're clean. We're completely forgiven, and nothing of the guilt remains, no taint. And the moment a sinner trusts in Jesus, he is as fully forgiven at that moment as he will ever be in heaven. So let's rejoice in and pray for the cleansing that is offered through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. How grateful we should be. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.